Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. Those are the first five verses of Psalm 136, which is the psalm appointed for today, Saturday, November the 12th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are continuing our look at the book of Joel today in the third chapter, verses 9 to 17 in Luke's Gospel, chapter 16, verses 10 to 18, and in the epistle of James, uh, chapter 2, the first 13 verses there. So, again, we've got Joel preparing us for um, the day of the Lord. And we just finished before this with uh, Revelation uh, just a few days ago. And and the part of Revelation that we read, actually, we didn't finish the book. It, it stopped before we got to the end. Where it stopped was it was the final day of the Lord, the final battle to end all battles before the kingdom is established and the new city of Jerusalem, uh, the new heaven and the new earth come. And so here we see Joel talking about that very time in this passage we're going to read today. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. And let the weak say, I'm a warrior. It's time, he says. It's time for for the battle to end all battles to commence. And we need every hand on deck if we're going to do this. And so let everybody get ready for the battle. Whatever you've got, make it into a weapon of war and come and join us and do so with confidence. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. So the Lord is encouraging them to come. And again, this is the final battle. This is what we know as Armageddon, is exactly what Joel is seeing here, that it's time for judgment to come. It's the great day of the Lord um, when the Lord will judge the earth, and those who are found worthy will uh, rise to life, and those who are not will not participate in eternal life. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. And it's similar to God's pronouncement concerning um, the, the delay of 400 years in going into the promised land for his people, because what he said was is that, that the time is not yet right. The Canaanite sin has not filled the land. And what would that mean? It, it would mean that essentially that, that there's nothing good left. And now that land, like Sodom and Gomorrah, can be judged and the inhabitants of that land be thrown out of the land because they've mistreated it and they've, they've mistreated one another. And, and so the, their wickedness was great in the same way, as I said, that Sodom and Gomorrah was, but in the same way also then that the sin of mankind was so great in the time of Noah that it had to be overthrown. And so now here we are again, and now once again the wickedness and evil has filled the earth He says multitudes, multitudes in the Valley of Decision. So he sees all these people there, all these uh, troops arrayed in what he calls here the Valley of Decision, which is also known as the Valley of Jehoshaphat, and also known as Armageddon. For the day of the Lord is near in the Valley of Decision. 
The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. We've already seen that very thing, and it's the same thing that we see in in the book of the Revelation, that the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. And so now everyone has gathered there, and there are those who oppose to the Lord, and there are those who are on the Lord's side. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. So there's a, a proclamation and a declaration from the Lord that, that he will protect Zion and Jerusalem, that, that um, Joel sees this as, um, as an earthly kind of a kingdom. John, in the book of the Revelation, saw it as the new Jerusalem where all nations would come and gather in that place, not just the people of Israel, but the true Israel, the true Israel being those who are of faith, who believe in the Son of God, and, and so then can come from all over to, um, to participate in, in the blessed life in the everlasting kingdom of God. In the uh, gospel lesson, remember yesterday what we had was is that um, um, Jesus told the parable of the dishonest steward, and what was commended there was he, he knew what he wanted to achieve, what his desired outcome was, and, and he manipulated the situation such that he would achieve that desired outcome. And he said it would be a good thing if, if the, the subjects of the kingdom took that same attitude, which is to say, what do I want? Well, I, I want to participate in the life of the world to come. All right. Now, do the things that are necessary to get you there so that you're welcome when you get there. And so that, what is that? What is the work that God requires us to do? And it's believing in his son. And so but but that's not the end of all things. It's the beginning of all things, because believing in him then means living according to the way he lived and the way he told us to live. So it's it's a movement in that direction. It's a step in saying, I want to live in that kingdom now, and I want you to establish it not just on the earth, but in me and through me. I want to, to live in your kingdom now. I want to participate in it today. It's not something I have to wait for. I can begin to live by the Spirit in the kingdom of God today, which means that we transcend things of earth. We're, we're no longer bounded by our desires and all that kind of stuff. Nope, we, we are in the kingdom if we're in Christ, and now live like it. Just do the things necessary to, to show that you believe. So he says, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who's dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. So your character is your character, period, end of sentence, whether you've got a little bit to be faithful over or a lot to be faithful over. One tends to, the the faithful in little tends to predict you'll be faithful in much. Unfaithful in little tends to predict you're going to be unfaithful in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? So Jesus had already said, use the, quote, unrighteous wealth to secure for yourself a place in the kingdom of God. So whatever you're given in this life, then, then use that in such a way that, that it, it shows you have kingdom values. It shows where your treasure is. This is all Jesus is really saying here, is that use your unrighteous wealth for that so that you will receive true riches, which, are, which is not money, right? 
So <clears throat> he says that if you haven't been faithful in what's another's, who will give you that which is your own? So if you don't, if you don't, if you're not a good steward of somebody else's money, then why would anybody give you anything? Because you're already proven yourself to not be trustworthy. No servant can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. So when he's talking about unrighteous wealth, he's talking about anything that that owns you in the same way that the guy with the bar, bigger barns did, that, that that was what his soul took delight in. And so here, that's exactly what Jesus is saying. You can't do both. It's not a matter of not being able to make money, but what do you do with that money? What do you do with what you've been given? The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And, and I've heard that. If you want to speak against accumulation of wealth, if you want to speak, and I don't mean this in a bad way. It, what I mean is, is that, that if that is your primary goal, right? So the health and wealth gospel tells you on the front end what it is. Prosperity gospel means prosperity. I want material wealth. And if that's the reason you're pursuing Christ, and I've been guilty of that. As I told you yesterday in my story, that when I first came back to the Lord at the age of 30, I did it because I wanted more. I had a lot, and I wanted more. But I knew after trying to read through all the self-help books, because that's what I wanted, that my real problem wasn't having more. My real problem was a spiritual problem, and that's when I made the, quote, bargain with the Lord. I mean, what I thought was a bargain, at least, is to to go to the Word of God rather than continue to soak up this um, this worldly sort of wisdom that was telling me how to how to get more wealth and how to bring that into my life. So that it's a problem. And so if you speak against the prosperity gospel, there are people who say, well, you think God wants you to be poor? No, I don't. I don't think, however, that what he primarily wants is for you to seek riches in the world. No, in fact, seek first the kingdom of God. Is He's very clear about that. And, the, and so the Pharisees here, what, what Luke is saying is condemning the Pharisees because they were lovers of money. And, and he's already said, Jesus did, you can't serve God and money. And so they ridiculed Jesus. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what's exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So if you're seeking applause from men, well, good for you, because, well, you've already received your reward. I mean, he said this multiple times through the course of his teaching, is that seek first the kingdom of God. Make that the primary thing in your life. That's what you want more than anything else. And do what's necessary to get yourself there. In other words, reject all those other desires and all those other things in order to get into the kingdom of God. The law and the prophets were until John the Baptist. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. In other words, it's, it's all always applicable. There's not something that goes away. Um, and, and he says the law will persevere, will be judged ultimately by the law. Does that mean because I have sin in my life that, that I will be judged by the law and found guilty and therefore not allowed into the kingdom of God? No, because I'm judged according to Jesus' righteousness. And I believe that he fulfilled every jot and every tittle of the law without blemish. And so I believe that, that that is what's in force through the end. Those who believe in Jesus will escape that judgment. If you don't believe in him, then you've chosen law to be your judge. And therefore, you're going to be found guilty and therefore 
barred from eternal life because you didn't believe in the one who is righteous. It, so it's not, I hope I'm good enough. You're not. That's the end of that sentence. You're not. There's, there's no qualification that I need to make for that. I'm telling you, you're not good enough. Jesus is, and he is the only one who is. And that, again, that's what Revelation 5 tells us. There was not one found in heaven or on earth or under the earth who was worthy to take the scroll from the one seated on the throne until the lamb, looking like it was slain, appears before the throne. And then he actually goes and takes the scroll. So it's a matter of um, that he didn't just show up and everything be good. No, he had to go and prove it by taking the scroll from the one seated on the throne. And so we know that he has fulfilled all righteousness, and so he is our only righteousness and our only hope, but he's more than enough. He says, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and who who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. So the, the bar, again, Jesus raises here is really, really high. And in the church, we, we have to I think we need to take divorce more seriously. You know, we can take it seriously for a minute um, whenever we're in the midst of something, but then we just kind of let go of it later. And, and, well, okay, well, he, I guess he's been long enough uh, or she's been long enough, whatever. And and now, no, we need to take it seriously because what we need to do is take marriage seriously. And we need to say, you took vows before the Lord, and we're here to help you walk through the sin that's caused this rupture in your life, and we need to come alongside and help people. But we can only do that to the extent we're allowed to do that. (laughs) So it's an important thing and an important ministry, I believe, in the church in order to do that. But, But Jesus says this is one of the things that we've been given to be faithful in is the marriage covenant. And it's an important thing for us to take seriously. As Christians, we need to take it seriously from the time anybody decides they want to be engaged and want to get married in the church, all the way through the wedding and then through the rest of life. That we need to we need to take that and make it a central thing. It's the it's the place where we can reflect the kingdom of God, especially in the world today with, with cheap and easy divorce, then then we can reflect the kingdom of God in the church and uphold the value of marriage in a way that, frankly, we have not over the last 50 years or so. So it's important for us as the church to say we value marriage enough that we will we'll drop everything to come and help a couple in that. In the James passage today, he says, My brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, stand over there or sit at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Well, there's a million different ways to do that. And yes, this happens. I mean, there's no question that this can happen in churches. It happens in churches all the time. Uh, I don't think I've ever been in a church where it didn't happen. I mean, I used to get invited to participate in things simply because I gave a lot of money to the church. Um, it, it, and it, it becomes an issue when, when we do that. One of the things that I, I really appreciated uh, and, and had, to, had to do in my own ministry was is that, that I saw done in another ministry was is that I never knew what anybody gave. I mean, I, I told the treasurer, I want to know if there's a change in giving for somebody one way or another because that would show there's something going on. But, you know, you hold up the standard as the tithe, and then I just let it go. 
Now, if you wanted to be in leadership, you had to be a tither because it showed something about your discipleship and something about your kingdom values. And I didn't allow anybody, ordained or non-ordained, to be in, on a leadership meeting, a team unless they tithed. You could be ordained and you could serve on Sundays, but that didn't ma- mean that you got to come and participate in the leadership meetings that determined the direction of the church because there was something in your life that you were withholding from God one way or another. And so that was a big deal for me. But I never knew what anybody gave. I just, you know, if you wanted to be in leadership, then you just had to say, well, yes, I tithe. And I took your word for it. I mean, I, I can't not do that. I, I wasn't going to ask for people's tax returns. But but I've seen it over and over again, and I've done it in my own life. There's no question I've done it in my own life. There's a, a human thing that, that wants to kind of kowtow to people that have a lot of money. Or the other side of it is sometimes people can despise the guy who has a lot of money and side with the poor in every case, and you can't do that. Neither one of those is right. So that's the issue. He says, have, you've become judges with evil thoughts when you do that. Well, we do it not only with wealth. Nowadays, what we're being, able, we're being asked to do is to tell one group of people that, you know, that, that, no, you've had your day, you've had your privilege, you need to deal with that, and, and you're, you're, you're bad. You're, your race is bad at some level. There's a, there's a profound... Uh, problem in your race, and unfortunately for you, you're emblematic of that, and you represent that by virtue of being born that way. And, and we've done it in the opposite direction for a long time. And so pendulums swing, but the church should be a place where we say, ah, that, that's not how it's going to work. It should have been that way prior to 1964, too, right? I mean, it shouldn't have been where we considered uh, black people to be a lesser race, but the solution to that is not to to say that White people are a lesser race or whatever. And so we, we can't make distinctions in the church. And, and Paul, over and over and over again, says there's no distinction. There's no neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, any of those things. He, when he writes to Philemon about his escaped uh, runaway slave, Onesimus, what, what he says to him is, is that when I bring him back to you, he is still your slave, but more than that, he's your brother. And you've got to treat him like a brother, not as a slave. And so that's exactly what James is saying. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? You know, and, and that's an important point for the church to hear, that Jesus in the Beatitudes is very clear about being poor in spirit, being mourning, being all those other things, that, that those are the ones who are blessed in the kingdom of God. It, it doesn't mean God's cursing people because they don't have as much as other people. No. In fact, he says they were the ones who were chosen to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. And that's exactly Paul's argument when he speaks to the Corinthians. Is he sees them making distinctions, and he says, hey, were any of you wise? Were any of you wealthy? Were any of you any of these things? You know, And it's the reason people like Mother Teresa, who, who chose to be poor, have had such a profound impact on the church, and, and why a guy like Malcolm Muggeridge, who is a hardened atheist, who meets uh, Mother Teresa, sees her love for God, sees her love for God played out in her love for those created in his image, and, and he becomes a Christian because of her example. And her example is kingdom values, like James is talking about here. He, he, he says, you've dishonored the poor man. Aren't the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? They're not among you. But, but when one of them does come, you act like, oh, the king has come or something like that because, well, they, they have a lot to offer us. And this gives us street cred 
if they're part of us. He says, if you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said don't commit adultery also said don't murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. So what does it mean that we would be judged under the law of liberty? It means that I had the freedom to, to be human. I had the freedom to follow the law. It's not a binding thing. It's a freedom to say I'm going to follow this because, it's, because I understand the love behind it and I understand and believe that it's best. And so I want to be one who is judged under the law of liberty. And how did I exercise that liberty? Did I exercise it for good or did I exercise it for evil? Did I, did I use it as an opportunity and a license to sin? Or did I use it as a way to follow and keep the law with joy? And therefore, we, we've got to say, nope, mercy triumphs over judgment, and it, and it does, and it has to. Because if mercy didn't triumph over judgment, none of us would get into the kingdom of heaven. There'd be no one there, not a single human being other than Jesus would participate in the life of the world to come. So we've been given the opportunity to keep the law in a different way to keep it with joy and with love, knowing that the lawgiver is loving and merciful. And that's our hope. It's built in that very thing. Our hope is, yes, we believe God will have mercy on me because I believe in love his son. And because I believe in love his son, then I'm going to act in such a way and live my life in such a way that I point to that other kingdom.